As we come now before the very word of God, please turn in your Bibles, if you'd like to read with me, to the book of Matthew in chapter 3. Uh, we have just two verses here this morning. Uh, this is Matthew in chapter 3. But before we read, would you please pray with me? Almighty God, your word here is not just the interpretation of men, but these authors have spoken from you as you carried them along by your Holy Spirit. So Lord, now as we hear these things, would you open our ears to really listen Help us to see, give us eyes to see, help us to think, give us minds to think, help us to praise, give us hearts to praise. Lord, guide us now to see you, that we would trust you more. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we want here this morning just the last couple of verses here of the chapter. So this is Matthew in chapter 3. We'll begin in verse... 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of God. Now, just a week ago, I thought at this time we would now be opening up chapter 4 in the next set of verses. Uh, chapter 4 is where we get to see Jesus and Satan in this sort of epic face-off in, in, in the temptation at the wilderness. It's a very exciting text, and, and the devil is there, a fascinating scene that we will get to, just not today. It became clear to me last week as I was preparing the text around Jesus' baptism that there was more in that text than I could fit into one sermon. So rather than trying to jam it all in and stretching our time out, I just decided it would be a loss or, or leaving it behind and kind of just moving on to the next text. I didn't want us to just skip this last bit. So instead of just moving on, we're, we're staying here one more week. If you remember this text from last week, it's because you heard it then too. But today we'll focus on a different aspect of this text. We're going to focus our attention today on the topic of the triunity of God, or what's more commonly known as the Trinity. Now, the word trinity doesn't actually appear here in our text. It doesn't actually appear anywhere in, in the Bible. If you were to Google or have your little handy Bible app out and type in the word trinity, you're not going to find the word in your Bible. But the concept, the doctrine of the trinity, has its fingerprints all over the scriptures. We are well aware 
as we begin to dip into this, that aspects of the Trinity can be a bit of a brain burner. So just a heads up, parts of the sermon will require a bit of mental energy from us. Groan, I know, I'm not gonna just spoon feed this to you. You can handle this, we're going to do our best. I'm going to do my best with the help of the Spirit to approach this subject with humility, with eagerness, with ears that want to listen carefully, because we really want to know our God. We know that the Bible, the Bible is not just this handy guide to life. You know, it's not a recipe book about how to be a good person. You know, in the Bible, God does show us what, what a righteous life looks like. The more we conform to the word of God, the more he makes us people who are kinder, people who are humbler, even people who are, are happier as we're conformed to him. He teaches us here what it looks like to love and, and sacrifice and to forgive in our, in our homes, our jobs, our neighborhoods, all of our spheres. All of that is true. It's true. It's true. But we also know that the grand theme of the Bible is not mainly about us. We're not the main character here. The Bible is about God. A God who is enthroned in the heavens and yet came as a servant on earth. To, to know here in the scripture the God who, who created us by the word of his power, the God who makes peace with us by the blood of his cross, the God who seals us now for his holy purposes. The Bible is from the very mouth of God to tell us about God. So now, in this event here that we've just read, toward the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, we get to see God. Specifically, we see God in Trinity. So we're going to ask two big questions now. Two. Two questions about the Trinity, which are these. What is it? Or I guess better yet, who is the Trinity? And then why does it matter? Who, who or what is the Trinity and why does it matter? Before we even address those questions, first let's look a little more deeply at this scene. Jesus, in the text we've read, has just been baptized by John the Baptist. We talked more about that last week. That baptism of Jesus is not for repentance. Everyone else came for a baptism of repentance, but Jesus, of course, now is without sin. He needs no repentance. Jesus is baptized instead as an, as, as an act to fulfill all righteousness, he says. His baptism is an act of obedience to his Father. That doesn't mean that Jesus is in any way inferior to his Father, but his whole life and ministry, everything about Jesus is devoted to obedience to the Father. So what happens next in this scene that we look at today is not because Jesus obeyed, but it is connected to his obedience. The text then says, after this baptism where we begin in verse 16, Jesus immediately went up from the water. 
Okay? So this is not actually part of his baptism. It's not coming up from the water after he'd been dunked in the river. It's afterward. So, so he had gone into the river at least part way, and maybe he was dunked, maybe he was sprinkled, splashed, dipped, poured over the head, whatever means of baptism John used, we don't know. But he'd gone into the river part way. The baptism is complete. And now, now that it's fulfilled, Jesus is heading back up toward the shore of the river bank. And as Jesus is coming up from the water, hair still dripping wet, running down onto his wet clothes, Something happens. The sky splits. It doesn't say the clouds parted. There are different words than that. It could have said the clouds parted if that's what occurred. Something different. It says the heavens were opened. And boy, if I don't wonder what that looked like. Could they see into the heavens? Was there a sound that accompanied that? Was it like the sound of of paper tearing open? We don't know. What we do know is that out out of these split open heavens comes something, someone. Here descends now the Spirit of God. And spirits don't have bodies. Uh, spirits on, in and of themselves do not have visible form. So the Spirit of God here adopts the form of a dove. He's like a dove. And, and this dove, the Spirit of God, lands on Jesus, I assume on his shoulder. Although I suppose the dove could have rested on his head. I, I, I don't know. Rests on him somewhere. Here comes this dove. And then we hear a voice, not from the dove, but from heaven. And that voice says of Jesus, this is my son. Whoa. This is not just an event that happens off in a corner somewhere. There are crowds that have come to John. We're told earlier that they've come from Jerusalem and Judea, from all the region around the Jordan, and they haven't come out to see Jesus. They don't know who Jesus is yet. This is still just the very beginning of his public ministry. They've come out to see John and to be baptized by John. So whatever it was that they were expecting to happen that day, I'm sure it wasn't to see the sky split open. I wonder what that was like for the people that were there to witness it. Was it startling? Scary, maybe? Do you just gawk and stare and not sure what to make of it? It's unclear from the text exactly what it was that the crowd could see or hear as part of this. If we look closely, the text technically says that the heavens were opened to him, to Jesus, and that he, Jesus, saw the Spirit descending. But this isn't just this little private vision that, that Jesus sees and no one else can see. John the Baptist, later in the Gospel of John, tells other people how he saw and heard all of this too. And the voice that speaks suggests a wide audience. The voice is not speaking to Jesus. You are my son. The voice says, This is my son. It's a sort of public introduction to the audience here. 
Whatever it was like for the people that were there to witness it, at least we do know this. Matthew, the author here, definitely wants us to see it, to pay special attention here. Twice in this little short span of these verses, he says the little word, behold. That is, look here. Pay attention, reader. Look here. Here is the intersection of the Father, the Son, and Spirit. There are few times in the whole of the Scripture where we see God in Trinity as clearly as we see him in this moment. So now that brings us to our questions. First, what or who is the Trinity? I'm going to try. This doctrine is difficult to explain and impossible to fully understand, but we'll give it a go anyway. It's impossible just because there is no one, nothing in the universe like God in Trinity. The word Trinity by itself can refer to other things besides just God. The word Trinity just simply means in three. But the doctrine of the Trinity as it's applied to God is much more complex than just that because God is just not just in three, he is three and one at the same time. The clearest way that I know how to put it is like this, that the Bible teaches God is one God in three distinct persons who are each eternally, fully God at the same time. Did you get all that? <laughs> Let me say it one more time, just for me, if no one else. God is one God in three distinct persons who are each eternally, fully God at the same time. We can see the distinctness of those three persons here at Jesus' baptism. There's clearly three. There's the Father, the voice from heaven. There's the Son, who's wet coming out of the river. And there's the Spirit, who's now descending like a dove. Those three are not identical to one another. They are distinct. And they interact with each other. And yet they are also one God at the same time. So the Father is God. Fully God. Most people are okay and totally on board with that. The Spirit, or the Son, Jesus, is not just a man, not just partly God. He is also fully God. Not a second God, also the one God. And the Spirit is not just a force, not a Jedi move, not an it. The Spirit is not an it. The Spirit is a he. He is also fully God. And yet, these three, Father, Son, and Spirit, are not three gods, but one God. So we could put it like this. There is one what, one what, that is one God. Three who's, there are three persons, three who's, but zero how's. At least for us. We have no idea how there's one what and three who's. We don't know it. We just know that it's true. 
Now, the fact that we do not know how exactly this plays out does not stop people from trying to reconcile in our minds how this could be the case. This is the point where people offer all sorts of analogies to the Trinity to try to explain it. And let me say as clearly as I can, Trinitarian analogies are always wrong. They are always off in some way. They always fall short. Inevitably, there are, there are always folks who claim they found some analogy that works as if they've stumbled upon something that people for centuries have been working to find and continually failing over. These analogies, things from creation that we're comparing to God and his Trinity, they don't move us closer to the truth of the Trinity. They move us further away. Because those analogies teach us untrue things if we compare them to God. Trinitarian analogies amount to false teaching about God. We call false teaching like that heresy. And heresy is pretty serious. You know, there are a dozen or more Trinitarian heresies. I don't need to name all of them, nor do you need to know the names. But I just want you to know how prevalent they are. Let me mention just a few analogies so that you can avoid them when you hear them. You may recognize these already. The analogy of the egg. Have you heard the Trinity compared to an egg or a number of other foods? So it goes like this. The egg has a shell, the white part, which I think has a name, but I don't know it, the white part, and the yolk. Shell, white, egg. Three and one. Trinity. Kind of. Not in the same way that God is three and one. The problem with the egg is that each of those three is not fully egg at the same time. Each of those three is part of an egg. You know, no one tries to eat the shell for breakfast. I hope not, at least. Because it's part of an egg, it's not egg. Nor would you buy a carton of a dozen yolks. This analogy falls short. Jesus is not part of one God. He is God. That's one analogy that fails. Another one that fails is the analogy of water. Familiar with this one? So it goes like this. The Trinity is like water in the sense that it can be ice, it can be water, it can be steam. Three in one. Or the version of this is that the same man could be a son, a husband, and a father. Three in one. That, fight, that fails. The problem with the water analogy is that in that there are not three distinct persons that coexist with one another. In the analogy of the water, there's just one person who cycle through different modes, different roles. Jesus never, never becomes the Father or becomes the Son or vice versa. Jesus is always Jesus. And Jesus is always God who coexists with the Father and the Son. Your brain melted yet? One more. Hang on. One more, just so you know it. The analogy of the sun. Sun, as in sun in the sky. goes like this. There's a sun, and then we have light and heat. 
three in one. Sun, light, heat. There's a mess of problems with this one that I can't even begin to get into, but the main problem with this analogy is that the sun is the source from which light and heat come. And that's not true of the Trinity. Jesus is sent from the Father to earth. That's true. Jesus submits to the Father. That's true. But Jesus never originates from the Father. Jesus is eternal, everlasting, uncreated God. Jesus has no source, no beginning, and no end. Now, there are bunches and bunches of other analogies of the Trinity that I could mention, but I won't. Just, they all fall apart. The triune God is in a category all his own in this. And it is best not to try to compare his three-in-one-ness to anything else that we see in creation. Not just to things that we see, also with things that we say about him. When we speak of the Trinity, we have to be careful of the words that we use to describe him because sometimes even words bend and creak when they're trying to hold the immensity of who God is when it comes to this. Even in something as simple as pronouns, he, she, they, it, you know, pronouns, we know how they work. This is what J.I. Packer, uh, um, theologian of some note uh, in modern years, says about the Trinity and the three in one, he says, each, that is each of the three, each of the three is I in relation to the two who are you. The one God, he, is also and equally they. And they are always together and always cooperating, father initiating, son complying, the spirit executing the will of both, which is his will also. Got all that? I mean, the first time I, I, I read that, I, I just had to go back and read it again. And even if you didn't, the, you know, God can speak of himself as, as both I and you. We can speak of God as both he and they. This is heavy lifting, I know. My goal is not to turn our brains to mush just to say that this is, this is big, and it's complex. Now, here's a place where I should mention this. If you think that you have thought or believed or taught perhaps even something wrong about the Trinity, that you're afraid that you've maybe had some heretical views in some place. There's no need to panic, nor do you need to defend your view. You just need to repent of that. Okay? Heresy is sin, serious sin, but Jesus is a, is a gracious savior of sinners. Okay, 
part of our repentance is not just to say, I, you know, I, I was wrong. It's also to try to learn what is true, which I know this is big, but we want to grow, don't we? We want to apply our minds, our hearts to listening to God and as he, he says in his word, even if we feel like we're stretching beyond us, to, to try, to submit ourselves to us. If you worry that you're not understanding all of it, well, first of all, join the crowd. But if you're afraid you're not getting it enough, let me at least encourage you here. The Lord doesn't call to himself scholars to examine him. The Lord calls sons and daughters to himself to rest in him. You know, it's, it's good for us to think about this, but don't allow the complexities of the Trinity to become a frustration to you. If you feel overwhelmed by it, let that feeling be shifted, turned to awe. Let it produce awe in you at the bigness of our God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one, a God who transcends the feeble thoughts of even the most intelligent minds, a God who is beyond us and yet also among us, a God who calls us not mainly to understand him, but to trust him. So don't let it crush you. Now, that was our first question. I'm sure you got it all. I'm not sure that I did. Who is the Trinity? Second and final question. Why does the Trinity matter? You know, I don't want, having just said, you know, encouraging us not to get overwhelmed by it, I also don't want to downplay the importance of understanding the Trinity. You know, some people would say, hey, preacher, Trinity Mm, I'm out on this one. You know, this seems like you're splitting some theological hairs here, trying to talk about all these little nuances. These are just silly doctrines that are removed from real life. Why should I even care? And if someone says that, that person probably doesn't realize how much they worship practicality. Some people don't even realize that the center of their faith is what I can do with a thing. And if I can't do anything with it or don't know what to do with it, then I don't need it. If something matters for God, it matters for us. I, we don't, we don't need to justify its worth by our measure of a thing's usefulness. True things about God are always valuable, whether we realize it or not. So I ask this question, why does it matter? Not because I want us to know how to apply it, how to take it home, and how to live it out in your lives. I just want us to help us see the impact it has on us, particularly in two areas I'll look at, and this will carry us to the end. Two areas why this matters, for our worship and for our love. Let's look at the worship first. The Trinity matters for our worship. You know, these, these doctrines of God in Trinity were extremely important, particularly for the early church. If you go back and look at what the church fathers in history wrote about, there is more debate and discussion about the Trinity than about anything else. 
some hot discussions for sure, but there were a lot of good things that came out of those wrestles as well. One, just as a side note, is the Athanasian Creed. If you've never heard of this, the Athanasian Creed is a summary of what the Bible says on the Trinity, how we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. It's a good thing, just a side note. But all these church fathers knew that it was very important to get this right, that we not miss it an inch. You know, have you ever hung wallpaper? Is that still in style anymore? We don't have wallpaper in our home. Anyone hung wallpaper? It's a lot of work, you know? It's sticky and messy and all of this. But the, the main thing about hanging wallpaper is, you know, if you get off, you know, you're not, some of you are nodding, have you done this before? You get off just like a fraction of a millimeter, and, and then you line up the next one based on that and the next one based on that, and the next sheet, and the next sheet, and before you know it, they're all crooked or wrinkled, there's gaps, and there's a whole big mess. If we miss just a little bit on the Trinity, it may not seem like a big deal by itself, but if we keep it that way, we end up with a God who is crooked and wrinkled, gaps, and a big mess. And we're seeing that happen now, played out. There are many people today, even people who are regularly a part of Christian churches, who think that Christians worship basically the same God as Muslims, basically the same God as modern-day Jews, basically the same God as Mormons, and, uh, and all sorts of other faiths. Now, there are many people who think that the Christian God, at least in the Old Testament maybe, is the same as other gods, and that is not true. Any God who is not triune is a completely different God. If Jesus is not worshipped as fully God, that's a completely different God. So these other faiths worship an empty God, a false God. So any prayers, any praises, any love, any devotion, really anything at all, any money even that's given, lifted up to anything other than the triune God, essentially is a worship of idols. What a waste. What a shame. What a sad thing. And even bigger than that, what a frightful thing that so many would be devoted to idol worship. This matters for our worship, but the Trinity also matters for our love. Our God, the true God, the triune God, is one in three and three in one which is to say that there is a community of relationship within God. And you notice, if we listen to our texts from today, the very first thing that the Father says of the Son when the sky splits open, the first thing he says is not just that he's well-pleased with him. He does say that. It's not that, that's not the first thing. The first thing he says about him is that he loves him. This is my 
beloved son. Which means that the very first mention of love in Matthew and the first mention of love in the whole New Testament is not of God's love for us. Although he does love us, God so loved the world that he sent his son. This first mention is of God's love for God, of the Father's love for the Son. There is a circle of love forever within God. So then when we see this circle of God's love extended to mankind, it is not because God needs our love. It's not because he's missing out on love. It's not because he's a lonely, valentine-missing person who just wants somebody out there to care about him, who created us to fill a hole of relationship for him. No, the triune God has never been isolated. He has always been in a community of love, which means this love in God, he now extends to us, not just to give it to us, but to bring us into his love, to abide in the triune love of God that has always been and forever will be. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, and these things we know are far beyond us, beyond me, to be sure. I hope that we have done just a little bit of justice to who you are. We, we are humbled by these things. We know that you are beyond our thinking and our knowing, and we are left just wondering in awe of who you are. But we long to know you better, to know you truly. Help us to see you rightly, that we would worship you and love you for all that you are, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.